HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Marion Nessel. I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University and a longtime fan of Heritage Radio. Like Marion, you too can support Heritage Radio Network, a member-based nonprofit radio station operating out of Bushwick, Brooklyn. I've been on it countless times. I love being interviewed. The interviewers are always really well prepared and fun to talk to about the issues that matter to me the most, uh, about how we can change our food system to one that's healthier for people and the environment. It's just invaluable to have an independent radio station that's dealing with these issues. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful asset. Support Heritage Radio Network by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Today's program is brought to you by Campari. For more information, visit Campari.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, you are listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. Uh, I'm not hosting In the Drink. You can find me um, really this summer over at Alta Linea, where I've been spending most of my time. Beautiful outdoor restaurant at the Highline Hotel over in Chelsea on 10th Avenue and 20th Street. Great place to come by and uh, drink a Negroni, a frozen Negroni, or maybe a Boulevardier uh, with today's guest. Uh, I'm actually I'm very excited about today's guest. We have Eddie Russell on the show. He's a master distiller. He's the master distiller at Wild Turkey Distillery um, as of 2015. And he is the son of a legend in the industry, Jimmy Russell. And he is an inductee of the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame. That is something I did not know exactly. Existed until uh, until having uh, agreed to have Eddie on the show, a 30-year veteran in the whiskey industry, uh, someone who knows an absolute ton about the stuff. He lives it. He's immersed in it. It's in his blood. His family history is all about bourbon. Eddie, welcome to In the Drink. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to come out and talk to you a little bit about our Kentucky bourbon. 
And from my understanding, you're a fourth generation in the bourbon industry. Uh, was there ever a time in your life where you had any thought to not go into bourbon? Is this something that you know, was in your bottle as, as a baby? Uh, well, Jimmy said I had my first taste at six months old as I was teething. He probably had a drink in his hand. He rubbed it on my gums. So that was my first taste. But I think most of us younger guys, Fred No from Jim Beam, which was a good friend of mine, even before we started in the industry, because Jimmy was Booker and Elmer T. Lee and Parker Beam from Heaven Hill and, and Buffalo Trace were all best friends. They were all making most of the bourbon in the world. So we grew up together. and But I think most of us didn't really think we wanted to get into the industry because our dads worked seven days a week. So for us, it was like we're from really small towns and we're thinking we're going to go to college and get out of this small town. And I actually went to work there for a summer job back in 1981. Uh, and within a few weeks, I got a taste of bourbon straight out of the barrel and knew I was never going to leave. <laughs> oh, wow. And how, I mean, things have drastically changed since 19. I mean, things have drastically changed in the last 10 years, right? Uh, what, was the, what was the industry like back then? Well, it was a very uh, American mainly only. Export was only about 6% of our business. Japan was really most of that. Uh, it was a very southern gentleman drink, uh, not much uh, cocktail culture, bartending culture. It was really a retail store where the guys got it and took it home and drank it with their buddies as they played cards or out on the back porch. Uh, so a very 50 and older male dominated industry back then. And now it's uh, bartenders love it. Uh Women love it. My girlfriend more often even orders the bourbon uh, or rye cocktail uh, than than I do, which uh, which is uh, such a such a huge huge change. So, what was your first job in the uh, in the bourbon industry? Uh, rolling barrels and stacking cases of of whiskey once it's bottled, uh, mowing grass, painting buildings. I was the bottom man there for about five years. Uh, so. What my dad was just trying to teach me was from the ground up, and that's how all the old master distillers had learned it. Yeah, rolling barrels is literally moving barrels from one side of... Are these full barrels? These are full barrels, about 510 to 525 pounds apiece. And is the idea that most uh, most of the barrel rooms are not air conditioned, right? So do you, is it that you're you're moving it, moving them around, so you have different ways of aging it? Not really. No. I mean, what you're doing is you're moving them to get them put in a rail. So our okay. warehouses are just metal clad with wood inside. Has a lot of windows that you open in the summer to get good air circulation. Uh, so it's just getting them from filling them to the warehouses, getting them filled. So doing all that. Once they get in there, you you rotate a little, but most of the time they just stay there. Mm -hmm. And during their aging process, uh, my warehouses are seven stories, so I need all those different stories to produce different tastes to make each one of my products. And then you blend based on each barrel tastes different. <clears throat> yeah, each barrel tastes different. So for me, you know, it's a lot of science in making the whiskey, the new distillate, what we call white dog, right off the mm -hmm. still. But the art of it is learning how to age it to produce different flavors and taste. I think you could probably get 60, 65% of the taste from that barrel and the aging process. And you, you mentioned the word science. Is there is there more science into the distillation and aging process now than there was 30 years ago? Uh, probably not as much in the aging. Uh, the equipment's a lot better. It was uh, very... 
old-fashioned way when I started. So the equipment's a lot better, but there was always a lot of chemistry involved in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of engineering, knowing how to build your stills, how big to make them, how many holes to put in the in the stripping plates where you take the alcohol and the water away. But it was really all sort of uh, apprenticeship. It was learned generation after generation after generation. Wow. And then uh, after you got these many years, kind of earned your stripes doing this really manual physical work, what was the next step for you? So uh, Jimmy brought me into the distillery. Jimmy's my father. I worked with him every day, so I call him Jimmy. Uh, He brought me into the distillery to teach me the recipes, how to make our yeast from scratch, which we still do to this day. everything about making it to it's ready to go in the barrel Mm -hmm. so i spent about eight or nine years just going deeply into every little bit of that Uh, you have to know your process from the time you receive your grains until the time it comes off the still as an alcohol so just learning every little step of that process was my next step in my progress of becoming a master distiller as someone who really loves wine the yeast is something that is uh really interesting to me uh that sounds like that might be something that differentiates you from other other whiskeys that you're actually cultivating your own yeast in-house as opposed to purchasing uh is is that a fair assessment yeah i think definitely so i mean as i grew up and hung around some of these distillers in the beginning you know, there's stories about the old distillers sort of cultivated this yeast off their back porch, which yeast is a wild bacteria in the air, and I think that's definitely true. But as I was growing up, there were some distillers that didn't think yeast did anything but turn sugar to alcohol, uh, where my father realized that there is characteristics to your yeast that does different things some yeast might be more fruity ours is a little more spicy nutty taste Mm -hmm. produce less fuse oils which is a component of alcohol so yeah making our yeast from scratch every week we still do it to this day it's a very simple question why is it called wild turkey uh because the original makers of wild turkey original owners was the austin nichols company from here in brooklyn new york there we were a huge grocer uh and spirits people and they were having this bourbon made by us in kentucky uh they were using it in several different ways in some blended whiskeys and austin nichols whiskey and uh, they actually went on wild turkey hunts every year so this was families uh and they took a, they called down wanted samples to take on the mm-hmm. hunting trip and we took some of this bourbon and gave to him and they took it all of his buddies really loved it the mccarthy family is the one that i remember uh, was some of the son was still there when I started, and uh, they took it on this wild turkey trip, and all his friends loved it because it was spicy. It had a lot of character. It had a lot of sweetness at the front. So they all kept saying, we want some more of that whiskey we took on the wild turkey hunt or the turkey whiskey they were calling it. So they decided uh, that was around 1936, 37, and I think it first hit the market in 40, 42, somewhere in there. So they decided to call it wild turkey. And when they went to the barrel and checked the sample that we had sent, it was eight years old and 101 proof. So they decided to go with that. So it was an eight-year-old 101 proof. 
Now, with the increased demand for brown spirits, with whiskey in particular, um, you hear, you hear a lot of stories of people changing their recipes, kind of laying off the the aging that they that they did before, releasing products sooner. Have you had to change anything with with this increased demand? Uh, my father was the only one that didn't change. What happened was everything was going along great until the late '60s, early '70s when vodkas came out. And that generation sort of trended towards those sweeter, fruitier drinks made with vodka. So bourbon started losing ground, and a lot of the big brands started, a everybody bottled and bonded 100. So the first thing they started doing was lowering the proof because they could get more bottles and make a little more money. And then they started taking a lot of the flavor out because a real bourbon has a, a bigger, bolder character, a lot of spice. Uh, so they took that out of it. So they were trying to compete with those vodkas, which my father realized we couldn't do. So he stuck true to his original recipe, a little more rye, a little more malt in his mash bill to give it that spicy boldness. Yeah, there was a dumbing down of, of taste during those years. Oh, yeah. So so many things. And one of the things I really appreciate about your whiskey that is it is very, very flavorful. Yep. And I, I think that uh, that goes well with the way that people are, are, are really drinking today, something that's assertive, that has character, has a sense of place. Uh, and you see that you see that with yours quite a bit. Oh, I, I definitely think so. I think that's what the bartending community, the young consumers are seeing, that this has character, this has flavor. Mm -hmm. It's not just that one taste, and it's not what you just mix with it that gives it the taste. You have great taste in bourbon that the bartenders are using other flavors to bring out those tastes. So, yeah, I definitely think that's an advantage for wild turkey. All right, so you haven't had to change the way that you're uh, you're aging um, your whiskeys, but before we got started, you did mention that there's been a, a huge increase in demand for rye, and you're distilling a lot more rye than, than you did before. Tell us, tell us that, how that's changed. So originally in America, rye was the whiskey that was made. It was on the East Coast. I'm talking about George Washington days. Most of them were farmers. They grew a lot of rye, used a lot of rye in their food. And as they came over the mountains into Kentucky, corn was the predominant grain, and that's what they started using around our areas. So that was the birth of bourbon, but still everybody used a lot of rye in their whiskey. Well, as bourbons became bigger, rye sort of fell out of f f uh, favor because it's a, it's a little different taste. It, it's a little more earthy taste. It's a, a little strong, spicy taste. Um, so rye's really, for a long time, were hardly even on the map. There was two or three old overhold Jim Beam and Wild Turkey 101 rye. That was really all you could find. And then as the bartending community went back and started making these old fashions and Manhattans mm -hmm. and different drinks, they started using bourbon at first and then realized originally they were made with rye whiskey. So they're the ones that started making the rye drinks because that flavor came through in that drink so much better and then everybody is normal what's well, in this well it's rye whiskey well what's rye whiskey so i actually made up until 2009 2010 i actually made rye two days a year i make bourbon over 200 days a year uh now i'm making rye almost two days a month uh and it's the same oh, wow. original recipe Wow, that's a huge increase, and and you had given me I can't remember, but some some interesting stats as to what the total rye production was. Uh, yeah, if you look look back at two thousand and nine, there was only about eighty thousand cases of mm -hmm. rye sold. 
2014, there was 360-some thousand wow. cases. So, so the, it's a huge demand. It's the fastest. It's still a very small part of the industry, but it's the fastest-growing trend out there. And it is definitely on-premise bartenders mm-hmm. making drinks with it. It's got it started. It's, it's incredible, and it really shows well in, in cocktails. I always like to, uh, when I'm describing rye versus bourbon, just talk about bread, right? Cornbread yeah. versus rye bread, yeah. and the difference cornbread is sweeter and right. easier and softer. Rye bread is kind of like spicier and more linear. Yeah, and I think that's the change in the generation is, you know, my generation was definitely that sweet tooth. They wanted sweet everything. I mean... People cook, they put a little sugar in everything, even vegetables, to give it a little sweetness. Where this new generation, they're eating spicier foods, whether it's Mexican, Indian food, whatever. <clears throat> so I think their taste profile has changed to a different type of taste, and that's what you get with the rye. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we'll be back, uh, we'll taste um, some of these delicious bourbons and rye. Well, I will, uh, and I'll tell you how good I'll they are. I'll join you. Okay, great. <laughs> a quick break. We'll be right back. talk about Campari, one of the first things that comes to mind is the inimitable and ubiquitous Negroni cocktail, a favorite of Heritage Radio Networks. Joe Campanelli, host of In the Drink on Heritage Radio, talks about the interesting history of the Negroni cocktail. The, the classic Milano Torino, which is better known as the Americano cocktail, which is Campari, good red vermouth. Use good red vermouth like Carpano Antica formula, Contrado, Cochi Vermouth Torino, one of those, and soda water. Then later on in its uh, history was transformed into the Negroni, which substituted good gin for the soda water, something a little bit stronger. Count Negroni spent many years traveling the Midwest, the Southwest of the United States, found a penchant for strong drinks, and later went to London where he started to like his gin, brought that all back to his favorite bar in Florence and said, I'll take one of those Americano cocktails, but make it stronger, make mine with gin. And such was birthed the Negroni cocktail. Um, and now it's really popular. I find that people are asking for Negronis with agave-based spirits, uh, mezcal or tequila Negronis, especially mezcal, a little more popular. Um, so mezcal Negronis are really delicious. Experiment with your own Negroni recipe and enjoy it with Campari for a perfect cocktail creation. For more information, visit Campari.com. Please enjoy responsibly. All right, we are back uh, here with Wild Turkey Master Distiller Eddie Russell. Uh, we were talking about his uh, rye before the uh, before the break, and uh, this would be a great uh, spirit to put into a Negroni and make a Boulevardier, the Wild Turkey 101 rye, and now actually have it in the glass. Can you tell us about this? Uh, tell us about what we're drinking here. So for what we consider a straight rye whiskey, if you look at any ryes, you want to see that word straight. That means it's done the right way. Nothing's added to it. Uh, in the past, we always had 101 uh, 
straight rye whiskey, which is just a very good mixing rye uh, that all the bartenders love. Uh, but in this, it's going to be a different taste than your bourbon. It's going to be a little sharper, a little bolder, a lot more of that rye taste. As we talked about earlier, it's the difference in eating white bread versus rye bread. So you get a different type taste, but it makes an excellent drink. But what I'm seeing nowadays, something I've never seen in my 35 years, is I have a son who drinks rye on the rocks. And that was something I'd never seen before. So the rise are becoming a great thing, not only in the mixed drinks, but to drink neat. But if you if you look at the rye, the smell's even going to be different than the bourbon. You're not going to have as much sweetness. Now, we're a little different than a lot of rye. A lot of rye are a 95% rye, 5% malt, or 100% rye. We still use a little corn in our recipe. So it makes it a little more well-rounded, I think, instead of just that real bitey rye taste. So. I've already gone ahead and taken a sip, but I think you get a lot of that rye flavor on the nose, but on the palate, it, it's a little softer and rounder in the way that a bourbon might be. Yeah. So, yeah, I think in that's that corn. It'll start out a little softer where a lot of the older ryes that you'll see out there are mm. real bitey right off the bat. So that sort of well-rounded softness up front and then... That rye taste just continuously comes back as it goes through your mid palate and down your throat. Now, I couldn't help but ask you a bunch of questions during our, our break, but you were, you were talking about the aging difference between rye and bourbon and how you feel that rye maybe doesn't need to be aged quite as long. Right. If you if you look at bourbon, I think generally my father is like 7 to 12 years. I like, you know, 10 to 14 or 15 years. Most bourbons are just four years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anywhere in the old days, they would talk about that six to eight year old was perfect aging for bourbon. Rise are more like five to six or seven years because rye already has that sort of spicy boldness. So you don't need to keep it in that barrel quite so long. So, you know, if somebody has a 10 or a 15 year old rye, it's probably because they couldn't sell it at five or six years old. Uh, so most of our rides are in that five to six and a half, seven year old range. Mm, this is just this is great. It's really spicy on the nose. It has a uh, a cherry character to it that I, I don't normally pick up with rye, yeah. but I love it. Yeah, I think a lot of the other rides that are just mainly rye, you get a lot more mini type taste to it, where mm-hmm. ours has a little bit of that fruity, like that cherry cola taste to it. That's that's excellent. Um, and what does that retail for? Uh, most places, it's probably in the $25 range would be my guess. An absolute bargain for a six, seven, eight-year-old aged product uh, that would be great in cocktails. I could sip this on its own. Yeah, easily. Well. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing about wild turkey, even our 101 bourbon, for the quality and the age, the prices have always been some of the best out there. Yeah, I agree. All right, so what is next? So what I thought we would do is um, I I started doing some what I call LTOs. So these are limited time offerings. Mm -hmm. Out of all the barrels that I have, I find special barrels that just I want to take home, but they won't let me legally. (laughs) Uh, So I set these barrels aside. I really watch them. I take care of them. The first one I wanted to taste was my first release as a master distiller. It's called Master's Keep 17-Year-Old. 
So this is whiskey. This is the oldest whiskey we've ever put out. 17 year old. 17 years old. Uh, but this was actually aged different than any whiskey we've ever had because I run out of warehouse space in 1995 and I had to rent two brick warehouses. So some distilleries will use brick warehouses, but they don't have the temperature change. They're cooler. They're damper. So I kept on this stuff and looked at it and seen it wasn't aging like normal. But what it let, it let me do was age it a lot longer and keep some of those soft notes that I'm looking for. Uh, the do- only bad thing is originally 53 gallons. I averaged about 16 gallons per barrel with this. So I lost all that liquid. You lost two-thirds of the liquid. Two-thirds wow. of the liquid. And you're not topping off the... We cannot as a bourbon. I can't top off. Yeah. Right, because if you were to top it off, it would slow down the evaporation. Yeah. And then you would have to start with the youngest age. So it would be starting over in the age. And so you can't do that. Also, this went in the barrel to 107 proof. And when it came out, it was 89. Wow. So I lost that much proof also. But turned out to be a fantastic product. So if you want to just get a nose, the nose is just a beautiful. This is as complex as a 30-year-old Bordeaux, maybe more. You know, this is a an extraordinarily beautiful, complex spirit. It's Oh, I think so. I think this, when we talk about scotches, this is that 30, mm. 40, 50-year-old scotch for a bourbon. And how do you make sure that the uh, – so you have a, a 107 proof, right, 50% alcohol spirit in a relatively warm climate and, I mean, cooler in the brick. But how do you make sure that you're not just extracting too much of the oak character and all you taste is oak? Because oak's a component here, but it's certainly not the only thing you taste. This is really complex, and you get you get green flavors, you get – Flavors that aren't grain or oak, some fruit, and and how do you how does that how do you so it's a it's about the warehousing. I mean, if I'd aged this in my normal warehouses where all that temperature changed, this would be this would be like chewing on a piece of oak wood, Mm -hmm. and that's what made this so special for me. That not only did I deal with this for seventeen years, but it the brick cool damp warehouse let me keep those nice complex flavors instead of just that i mean 17 years in my warehouse the first word that when you taste it would probably be bitter because that wood turns it into sort of a bitter chewy oaky taste mm-hmm. so this was just fantastic the way it turned out really great and how much of this did you make uh, normally these LTOs, I'll do somewhere between forty, fifty thousand bottles. Okay, so, so just you can bottles, find them. small amounts, yeah. but you could still find. So them. this one's been out of here. So this one it would be pretty hard to find right now. Right. Uh, so this has been out for about a year. We do the, you know, at least half of it in the states, and then we do a little bit in Japan and Australia. Those are our two big export markets. Do you find that they age at all once you put it into bottle? No, for us, once it leaves the barrel, it's done. Okay, but I'm saying that this tasting, tasting this today versus right after you bottled it, it should be the same. Should be the same. Yeah, as taste long the same. as you keep that. Yeah that bottle from getting any air mm-hmm. uh it wouldn't get any better it'd get worse if it got air to it and oxidized okay and stuff. so if you were to find an antique bottle of whiskey that had not been opened it should taste pretty much the same as when it was released but if someone had opened it then it'll start to or if it air. got uh, air into it through the cap or anything okay. it could change as long as nothing got inside that bottle it should be the same the day it was bottled 
Have you had some good experiences with very, very old bourbon or rye whiskey? Uh, yeah, like I mean, I, I talk about this a lot. You know, our industry is very about the romantical historical end, but I think uh, back in the old days, things weren't quite as good as they were now because now we have such better equipment. Our grains are better. Uh, we have better processes. So I think we'd actually make a little better. I think mm-hmm. it was a little more... Uh, little more on the uh i don't want to use the word harsh but really Say that's rough what, and tumble rough and tumble <laughs> back then you know because nowadays you're doing it you've learned your process you've got better equipment you know exactly what you need mm-hmm. to do in every step so I, I think it turns out a little better look out for this lto this is absolutely delicious so what do we have next today's so what i wanted to do with this is really to showcase wild turkey and what we can do with one recipe. So a lot of distilleries have four or five recipes that have several yeast. I have one. So the day it goes in the barrel, it's all the same. So what I want to do with this is I want to do a little series, maybe three of them. Uh, The next one I want to do is some whiskey that I found uh, that come from some warehouses. We call the McBrayer Warehouses. And I run into some 2003, 2004 whiskey that was just exceptional off the middle floors. That's what we call the center cut. So I got to looking around and I thought, you know, 10 years would be my perfect aging for me. So I said, I'll do a little 10. I got to looking around. I had a few barrels of 20-year-old, which is very unusual for us. They'd sort of slipped through the cracks. Only about 15 of them. And... uh, So I got to thinking, let's do a 10 to 20-year-old. But what I was looking for in this, as you tasted the Master's Keep 17, it was very, uh, very soft, very sweet, but had a very complex, fruity, then that wood on the end. This is more what I consider that old-style whiskey, wild turkey. Very complex, but bigger and bolder. Oh, yeah. And I should say, uh, we haven't given a shout to this, but you, you're also one of the co-founders of Russell Reserve. And the Russell Reserve 10 is one of my favorite whiskeys. Also an excellent value for a 10-year-old <laughs> yeah. aged uh, uh, whiskey. I mean, really extraordinary. So you'd say that 10 is probably the, the age that, that you really yeah, like. That's me, my me favorite. As well. That's yeah. my favorite. Uh, uh, just a quick little story about that. That actually come out for my father's 45th anniversary. Our company thought he was going to retire, so they had a big party uh, in Lexington, Kentucky. Jim Murray writes the Whiskey Bible, came, the governor, there was about 300 people. So came out with the Russell's 10 for his retirement dinner. So 17 years later, he still comes to work every day. He hasn't (laughs) retired yet. But that's what really started the Russell's brand. So with the 10, I came out with uh, the Russell's Rye, which is a a six-and-a-half-year-old rye. Mm -hmm. It's a great rye. And then about three and a half years ago, I released a Russell's Reserve single barrel bourbon. Uh, So I released a Russell's Reserve single barrel rye last fall. So the Russell's line is that very small amount of barrels that you blend together to make a batch. Mm -hmm. Is it from the same distillery, same aging facility? Yeah, it's It's the same recipe. It could be any of my barrels. It's just the ones that I think are very best. They're coming off that center cut. 
uh, in age to the age I want them at the proof I want them. Yeah, I mean, they are outstanding. Uh, I would definitely seek those out as well. So I'm tasting this, and uh, I agree, a little bit more assertive. Um, is the alcohol a little higher on this as well? This one will be 104 proof. Four proof. Uh, I like that 100 to 110. Uh, the the 17-year-old, I couldn't do. I basically barrel-proofed it at 86.8 because it was 89. Crazy. But this, I had enough proof to put this in. I love that 104 proof. So yeah. you see a few of my products are 104 proof. Are, are you the type who might put a little bit of water or an ice cube? or I... I'm an ice cube. I'm not a water guy at okay. all. I don't. Uh, I think that comes from Jimmy and all those older guys. They were anything. You didn't talk about blending. Because to them, that meant a blended scotch, which would come from 20 or 30 distilleries, and they blend together. And you didn't talk about putting water in your bourbon, because that's what the scotch guys always said. Drop a drop of water, and it'll open up. And my dad would say, you don't need no water. It's perfect the way it is. I <laughs> <laughs> got it. And then uh, I think the ice cube's nice, too, if it's a hot day. Uh, I love a right. couple ice I don't like a uh, full glass ice, but a couple ice cubes. Yeah, I can... I can see that working really well with this. Though the 17-year the was so smooth, I think that I could certainly sip that one. The 17 uh, is some of the best whiskey. I mean, uh, some of the older bourbon guys, it's too smooth for them. Mm-hmm. But for me, that's just the difference in a generation. I love that 17. And the decades is more about paying homage to Jimmy and mm-hmm. all those older guys. This is old-style bourbon. So, very complex, very big, very bold, very spicy. I mean, also outstanding. As I just want to ask one last question. Has there been a generational shift? Is your is your dad tried to uh, allow you to make any changes that you would like to make in the distillery, or um, has that not been the case? Well, for about 20 years, I thought my name was no, (laughs) because I would say, Jimmy, let's try this. And he would say, no, Jimmy, let's do this. He would say, no, we had wooden Cypress fermenters when I started. Most everybody had gone to stainless steel because they were so easy to take care of compared to the wood. And I was like, Jimmy, let's do stainless steel. And he's like, no. So I kept on. He finally let me build one. And it took him eight years to tell me that it didn't change the taste of his whiskey. So as far as Jimmy, there is no change, and he doesn't want any change. So that's sort of where I've got to. Yes, I like to play around a little more in him with some barrel finishes and trying some things. But uh, keep in mind that what Wild Turkey's about is a good premium product that's done the right way. So if it doesn't work, if you're lucky enough to be one of my friends, you get to drink the stuff. If it works, then I'm going to release it and put it out. All right. Thank you so much. It's been Eddie Russell, the master distiller of Wild Turkey and co-founder of Russell's Reserve. What a pleasure to have you on In the Drink. Thank you. Appreciate the chance. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening. Also, thank David and the team over at Heritage Radio Network, including Aaron Fairbanks and everyone. Uh, This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.